Hey, good morning, friends. Yeah, yeah, good morning. Hey, good to see you. (laughs) Uh, Ushers, come on down. Let's take the morning offering together. And as we do, just want to say, as always, church, thanks for giving. Thanks for being a part of ministry, for making ministry happen through your tithes and offerings. Uh, uh, If you're here and you're not prepared to give, just know we don't, you're not buying a ticket to church by putting something in that offering basket. It's just part of our life together and what we do uh, to make sure that we can do our best with with what God has given us. So uh, thank you guys for giving however you you're doing that. Uh, I do want to mention one thing about Night to Shine before we get into the message. Uh, Last week I said we're not going to stop talking about Night to Shine until it happens, so here I am talking about Night to Shine, but I promise it's just one thing, okay? Just one thing today. And that is if you are signed up to volunteer at Night to Shine, whatever your role is, whether you're a buddy or on the cleanup crew or whatever, uh, you probably already know this, but I'm here to remind you, you have a meeting today. You have a meeting at 1230, that's after our 11 o'clock service here at, uh, in this room, I think, uh, so uh, be here then at 1230, and um, if you haven't had a background check done yet, or if you're not sure you've had one done yet, or if you need one for the event or any of that, uh, we'll be taking care of that here during that, uh, Dell and Grady will be here taking care of a background check. So just so you know, that's happening, uh, so thank you guys who are volunteering and who will be here for that meeting for Night to Shine. Uh, Most of you probably know the name Christopher Reeve. Christopher Reeve, in case you don't know, was an actor best known for his portrayal of Superman in the movies titled Superman, numbers one through four, in the 70s and 80s. And if you know the name Christopher Reeve, you probably also know that he uh, was paralyzed. In 1995, he was in an equestrian competition, and he fell off his horse and broke his neck and was paralyzed from the neck down. He died in 2004 from a heart attack and other complications, nine years after his accident um, at the age of 52. This year is the 20th anniversary of Christopher Reeve's passing, and to mark the occasion and to celebrate the life and um, and career and honor their father, his three children took part in a documentary that, uh, about his life and career that debuted this last week at Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah. And this title of the documentary, appropriately, is Superman, the Christopher Reeve story. One review I saw of the film uh, said that one of the most surprising things about the documentary was seeing how Reeve's relationship with his children changed following his accident. Uh, During the film, his son Matthew, which is is a great name, by the way, uh, his son Matthew um, tells a story that uh, just kind of indicating who his dad was, and he was always on to the next thing and adventure seeing in this. Um, The day after Matthew was born, Christopher Reeve left Matthew and his mother uh, to go skiing in France. Matthew also notes that growing up, that much of the time that was given to them by their father and the love shown to to him and his siblings took the form of competition. Like, they would go skiing together as a family, but skiing would become races, and their father would race them and leave them in their dust. But after the accident, believe it or not, things changed for the better. Christopher Reeve's daughter, Alexandra, said that our love language was activity before, but suddenly now you're spending time just hanging out in dad's office, looking each other in the eye and talking for two hours. Christopher himself acknowledged this, saying, it's powerful words, I think, 
I needed to break my neck to learn some of this stuff. It took losing something of himself to see and gain perspective about what really matters in life. Uh, Not that he was a bad man or a bad father before. I mean, I didn't know the guy, so I can't really speak to that too much. But it is interesting that he acknowledges that he needed to break his neck to stop being able to function normally in order to understand the importance of just being with the people that you love. And unfortunately, I think for most of us, for many of us, it often takes something dramatic for us to change or to gain perspective about things. For many of us, it takes brokenness. It takes desperation. It takes helplessness to realize just how uh, broken and desperate and helpless we actually are and that the only thing we really have and, and all that we need is right there for us in our God. Today, we are going to pick up where we left off last week in Genesis chapter 32. Uh, this is one of our, uh, my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, and the passage we're going to talk about today might be my favorite story in the whole Old Testament. It's it's vague, it's kind of weird, it doesn't really make sense to our modern worldview and framework, but uh, the story is profound and it is powerful. So let me catch us up on where we are in the story with, uh, with our friend Jacob. Now, Jacob, he, he's on his way back to the land of his father, Isaac, after spending 20 or so years in the house and employ of Laban. Laban is his uncle, and Jacob is married to Laban's two daughters, Leah and Rachel. His whole life, Jacob, to this point, was not a great guy. He was sort of a deceiver and a trickster. As a kid, his brother Esau, he deceived and tricked multiple times, and uh, Esau, we know if we read the story, hates Jacob and wanted to kill him, which is why Jacob left home to go live with his uncle Laban because Esau was going to kill him. While he was with Laban, Laban then deceived and tricked Jacob multiple times during his time living and working for him. Jacob's life to this point has been, uh, it's been marked by deceit, deceit both given and received. But despite all this, no matter to grow, at this point in the story, he has 11 kids. His family is growing, just like God promised. And at God's direction, Jacob has left Laban with all of his stuff, with all of his servants and his family, and on his, is on his way back home to the land of his father, Isaac. But Jacob also knows who is waiting there for him his brother Esau, who hates him, who last he knew wanted to kill Jacob. Last week we read the story, the first half of this uh, chapter, Genesis 32, and read the story of Jacob's plan to deal with Esau. First he sends a message to Esau and tells him, hey, I'm coming home, Uh, please don't hurt me. (laughs) Then Esau responds, his messenger comes back, Jacob's messenger says, hey, Gave your message to Esau. By the way, him and 400 men are on their way here. Jacob thinks, oh, he's coming to kill me. He's got a small army. He's going to come kill me, my family. He's going to make good on his desire to kill me, like when we were kids. So he quickly comes up with a plan. In his, in his anxiety, fear, desperation, he says, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to divide all my camp in two. And then when Esau comes and attacks one, the other one can escape. He also decides to send a bunch of gifts to Esau on the road. 
He sends multiple waves of gifts of sheep and cattle and goats to try to appease him to kind of buy Esau off and say, hey, don't kill me. Here's all this stuff you can have. Now, um, we learn in the next chapter, we talked about this last week, that Esau wasn't actually coming to kill Jacob. In fact, when they reunite, they reconcile, they hug, they weep. There's love there. But Jacob doesn't know that yet. Where we are in the story today, in today's passage, Jacob is waiting. He's still filled with fear and anxiety. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. The camp's divided. The gifts have been sent. Jacob is waiting in fear and anxiety to see what his fate will be at the hand of Esau. He sends his family across the river. He sends his stuff across the river. He's left alone there, broken and desperate and, and helpless alone. I think too often it takes us being there too to learn, right? But I believe that that's where God does his best work in us. Now, remember who Jacob is. He's a deceiver. He's a trickster. And even though God has shown Jacob his faithfulness for Jacob's whole life, the best he's given God is sort of a second thought or trying to bargain with him. Last week, we talked about in the story, Jacob makes this plan. He's afraid. He comes up with this plan. And then afterwards, he prays to God and says, hey, God, remember when you said you were going to protect me? Now's the time. Tries to leverage God into that. And I believe that because Jacob didn't come to God first in his fear, trusting him, that Jacob has no confidence. He has no assurance that his plan is going to work. He's left feeling the weight of his own desperation in the situation he's in. Now, in this story, we don't know where this man comes from. Jacob's there alone, and a man comes and, and wrestles with him. We don't know why they start wrestling, but it happens. I, I don't think this was a common occurrence in the ancient world, and I don't think it's a common occurrence for us today. Maybe if you're in downtown Burlington at the wrong time, that might happen, but typically, you're not walking around wrestling people wherever you go. It's not common. It's weird. We have no indication where this guy comes from. But as the story progresses, what doesn't make sense now will start to make sense. Uh, this, is, this is no mere man, surprise. The Hebrew word that's used here, man, in Hebrew is this word ish. And ish is a very generic word. It can mean a human male, yes, but it's also a generic word that can just mean a person, an individual. It's, it's often used that way, just to denote an individual, not necessarily specifically a man. And we learn as the story goes on that this individual is somehow God. There's a theological term that talks about how God manifesting himself in physical form. It's a, it's a word called theophany, God revealing himself, manifesting himself. So Jacob here, he's alone, he's afraid, and he spends the night wrestling with God. This is who Jacob has been his whole life. Someone who creates conflict with almost everyone that he's interacted with. And his life with God hasn't been much better. 
Now, God has chosen Jacob as the person through which he's going to fulfill his promises made initially to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. And these promises to Jacob, are no, they're not based on his merit because Jacob doesn't have much merit. No, it's only because of God's grace that Jacob has received anything from God. And yet to this point, he seems to give God no more than a second thought. So to find Jacob here wrestling with God, alone, afraid, broken, maybe in his darkest moment, we shouldn't be surprised. In his most, most feel, fearful state, broken and desperate and helpless and alone, it's, it's not surprising that he's wrestled with God his whole life. Why should this moment be any different? But this encounter with God is not going to be like the encounters before. This encounter with God is going to leave Jacob changed, changed forever. Let's read on. We'll go to verse 25. They're wrestling. It says, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And the man said, let me go. It's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I wonder if there's a point in here where Jacob realizes this is not just an ordinary man. I mean, for someone to have the endurance to spend the whole night uh, in a physical struggle, I, I find that to be superhuman. I know I'd be very tired very quickly, uh, despite my physique, right? And, my, and yet, it's with ease... After a night of wrestling, it's with ease that this man is able to just touch Jacob's hip and totally cripple him and leave him changed and hurt. A mere touch, and Jacob is changed. But even with the power demonstrated in that touch, the wrestler God is not able to beat Jacob. All night, he's not able to overpower him. Now, there may be some intentional limitation on God's part as he's manifested himself as a person here, that, but that's not the point. The point is Jacob's stubbornness, his unwillingness to yield and give up, his tenacity and his desire to gain something from this stranger has kept Jacob in the battle. It's Jacob's character coming out again. He, he won't be bested in the midst of this conflict. And it's interesting that Jacob won't let go until he gets something from his opponent. He says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. Again, does Jacob know who he's dealing with in this moment? I'm not sure. He does by the end of this story, but right now, does he know? I think he at very least understands this isn't a regular human. There's something supernatural. There's something else going on here. And I think this is right where God wants him. Remember, Jacob, he's afraid, he's anxious, he's waiting. He's broken and desperate and helpless. And in this moment, whether he knows it or not, he's literally clinging to God, unwilling to let go until he is blessed by God. And for us, this is where God can do the greatest work in our lives. When you have nowhere else to turn, when when your strength has run dry, when there is nothing left of you to get in the way, this is when God's greatest work can be done in your life. Jacob's whole life, he's been the deceiver and the trickster. 
the one making bargains, the one coming out on top. Even when God has spoken directly to Jacob, and he has several times, Jacob hasn't really changed. But when Jacob is broken and desperate and helpless, Jacob is changed by his encounter with God, and his hip is a sign of this change, this change happening. So let me ask you, when things are going well for you, when your bills are paid, when your bank account is feeling a little fat, when you look in the mirror and you you feel good about what you see, when you have praise from your boss, when your car is working just fine, how often do you say to God, God, I, I really need you? Or what about when you get laid off or the mechanic calls and says, hey, that noise you've been hearing, that's your transmission. Or when the doctor calls with the results from your biopsy or your test. Or that friend you really love just won't talk to you anymore. How often then do you find yourself saying, God, I really need you? Probably a lot more than when things are going well. Now, I don't think God wants you to be broken or desperate or helpless. I, I don't think he wants you to be there. But when you are, and so many of us are from time to time, that's when he is able to do his best work because you aren't standing in your own way anymore. when you are in that place of feeling broken, I believe you are far more likely to realize that you actually need God just to make it through the day. When you're not standing in the way, God can do some pretty incredible things. He can bring healing to brokenness. He can bring assurance to desperation. He can bring help to helplessness. And when you cling to him, when you won't let go of him because you have nowhere else to turn, God promises, he promises in scripture, he promises that he is with you. God's word through the prophet Isaiah, chapter 41, verse 10 says, do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is traveling around the area of Galilee. He's traveling to different towns, doing miracles and and teaching. And a lot of people, and some of those towns in particular, aren't listening to Jesus. Saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And they won't repent. They won't change. They won't take that step to stop doing what they're doing and being in their own way and let God do his thing. And Jesus calls them out for that, and he, he tells them that, hey, if you don't do this, things aren't going to go so well for you in the future. Your destiny is not going to be so bright. And it says that it's during this that he tells the people in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. When the people are at their most stubborn, when they're standing in their own strength, when they're It's when Jesus says, come, my burden is lighter. Come to me and I will help you. That's God's promise for you. That your brokenness is not the end. 
that there is help, that there is rest, that there is peace when we get out of our own way and come to him. So Jacob, he's stubbornly wrestling with God, and, but he's also stubbornly holding on to God, clinging to him, whether he knows it or not, and God takes the opportunity to do the best work he's done in Jacob's life. Go to verse 27 and 28. The man asked him, what's your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Now, in the ancient world, and especially in the, in the Bible, a person's name is typically indicative of something about them, their character, who they are. When Jacob and his brother Esau were born, they're twins, uh, this is what it says about them and their names in Genesis 25. It says that the first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Uh, Esau was born hairy, and so they named him Esau, and the word Esau translates to hairy. It's appropriate. <laughs> Jacob comes out. He's grasping at Esau's heel, and he comes out, and, and they name him Jacob, which means grasps at the heel, very literal people we're dealing with here. But that phrase, grasps at the heel, that was a Hebrew idiom. It was an idiom for, for a deceiver. He deceives. This is who Jacob has been his whole life. He's been Jacob. Even to this exact moment, a deceiver, a trickster, someone who has tried to bargain with God several times, Jacob has lived up to his name. He is Jacob. The wrestler God asks for his name. Now, we know this is God. God knows his name. This question's rhetorical. What's your name? It's like when Adam and Eve, he's wrestled with God with a stubborn tenacity to receive what he needs from God in this dark moment. And and God, with Jacob finally clinging to him and with God, and have overcome. Like his grandfather before him, Abraham, whose name was changed to mean father of the nations, God changes Jacob's name to reflect the person he is becoming. Jacob, deceiver, gone, Israel, now here. Now, the Hebrew word Israel is kind of vague. It doesn't really have a good translation. No scholar has exactly nailed down the etymology of the word, but, but the meaning of this word Israel doesn't come necessarily from the word itself. It comes from the context in which it's given, and it's defined for us here by God as he gives the name. He says, your name is Israel because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome you know, Jacob has gone through his whole life as Jacob, and he's endured the consequences of being Jacob, the consequences of his own actions as well as uh, unfair treatment and deception of others towards him. But in that still, he has carried the promise and the blessing of God with him, and uh, even though he hasn't honored that as well as he could have or should have, Jacob has struggled with God for sure, and he has struggled with people for sure. Him, he has overcome from Jacob to Israel. 
Now, I'll never forget this from my first week when I uh, started at Gordon College as an undergrad. I, I transferred in as 20 years old, uh, as a 20-year-old, <laughs> when uh, after God had called me to ministry and I said, hey, I got I to gotta get some good study under me. So I transferred into Gordon College to study biblical studies. My first week there, I showed up to class with uh, a professor named Marv Wilson. Now, um, Marv Wilson, he was this little old guy who'd been teaching at Gordon College for hundreds of years at that point, and he uh, was just the best. He was part of the biblical studies department, and um, the class I was taking with him was called Old Testament Theology. Now, Marv was very plugged into Old Testament studies and to, um, and to the Jewish community. He was loved, and he loved the Jewish people. He taught classes on things like modern Jewish culture, and I went with Marv and others on several occasions to go uh, to Sabbath services at the local Jewish synagogues and to go to Passover Seder meals with the Jewish community. Um, He loved, respected, and knew the Jewish people well and was loved by them in return. The first day of Old Testament theology, I showed up to class, and, and Marv was talking about how we should view the Old Testament, and in particular, the God's people in the Old Testament. And I'll never forget, he said these words. And um, this is according to Marv, but I trust Marv. He said, ask any rabbi what it means to be part of Israel, and they will tell you it means to wrestle with God. Pointing to this moment. This has stuck with me for 17 years, and and I chew on it every now and again. That the people of God, that God called out from the nations, Jacob's descendants, that the core identity of God's Old Testament people, the people of Israel, indicated by their name and by this story, that their identity, they saw, was to wrestle with God, to struggle. I think to live in the brokenness of this world to be so often helpless on our own and yet to cling to faith when the world is pulling us in a thousand different directions. To rely on God when I have no strength left, that's what Israel means. To wrestle with God, to wrestle with people, to have struggles in this world and to overcome, to persevere. And that identity of God's people, I think, becomes our identity too in Christ. That we wrestle with these things. We we struggle with, with God and with the world and with ourselves and all the different pieces we're trying to put together, our doubts and hopes and and to overcome, to prevail, to cling to Him so that your identity is not what it was. But you have a new name given to you by God. Son of God. Daughter of the Most High. Beloved. So, uh, don't think that you're too broken. Don't think that things are too desperate or you're too helpless for God to help you. There is no moment too dark for any of us to cling to him Not only for what we need, but for a new name and a new future. Let me finish, let me finish this passage, then I'm gonna tell you a story. We'll finish up verses 29 to 32. Uh, Jacob says, Please tell me your name. 
But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. So even though God doesn't reveal who he is to Jacob, Jacob knows who he is. He says it. Now, some people interpret this passage that, no, Jacob was wrestling an angel. He was wrestling a messenger of God, someone representing him. But looking at how Jacob interprets this um, situation that he was in, I wasn't in, he was in, I'm comfortable saying that, no, this was God. Somehow this was God. He says, I saw God face to face and lived. He was changed. He was limping. His name was different. He isn't Jacob the deceiver, but now he's Israel because he's wrestled with God and with humans and he's overcome. In this moment, overcoming meant clinging to God. Jacob's encounter leaves him changed. All right, let me tell you this story. This is a story of two men whose lives were on a collision course, a collision course with each other, but a collision course with God that they could never have foreseen. In fact, they probably would have run from, but this collision course left their lives radically changed. Our first person is Mitsuo Fuchida. Hope I'm saying that right. Mitsuo Fuchida was a Japanese captain in the Imperial Japanese Navy Service. Fuchida expressed his hatred for, quote, the demon whites and was responsible for coordinating and leading the first wave of aerial attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. Our second guy, his name is Jacob DeShazer. He was a member of the United States Air Force, proclaimed atheist. He was peeling potatoes when the news of the attack on Pearl Harbor came over the radio. And in his telling, he says he became enraged and shouted, the Japanese will pay for this. Two men with a deep hatred for the other. Uh, DeShazer, he volunteered to join a special force that was being put together to attack Japan. He took part in what's now called the Doolittle Raid, which is the first aerial attack that took place on uh, Japanese soil in World War II. And they they attacked Japan and some other spots. During the raid, DeShazer's plane ran out of fuel, and him and his, uh, his, his crew abandoned the plane and parachuted down deep into Chinese territory, hoping where they were going to land was safe, but where they landed was, in fact, not safe. It was held by the Japanese army. They were captured, and DeShazer spent three years as a prisoner of war. In his captivity, he was starved, he was abused and beaten, among other things, fueled this hatred for the Japanese people, his enemy. Imprisoned and abused, broken, desperate, and helpless. DeShazer would be sentenced to death at a trial in Tokyo, but his sentence would eventually be commuted to a, just, to, just to a life sentence where his abuse continued. One of his fellow prisoners... There, in the, where he was being held captive, was a Christian. 
but this man wound up dying. And after his death, for some reason, for some reason, the prisoners were given a Bible. DeShazer started to read that Bible. And wouldn't you know, he gave his life to Jesus. And when he began to follow Jesus, when he began to cling to God in the midst of brokenness and desperation, helplessness, being imprisoned, just waiting to die there, his life was changed. His hatred for the Japanese, for what he perceived as his enemy, it turned into compassion. And DeShazer, he said this. He said, suddenly... This is looking back on that time. He said, suddenly I discovered that God had given me new spiritual eyes and that when I looked at the Japanese officers and guards who had starved and beaten me and my companions so cruelly, I found my bitter hatred for them changed into loving pity. I realized that they did not know anything about my Savior and that if Christ is not in a heart, it is natural to be cruel. The end of the war, DeShazer's prison was liberated by the American forces and he returned home. But he didn't stay home for long. In 1948, he returned to Japan as a missionary. And he traveled the country preaching the gospel, telling people about Jesus and how his hatred for them had turned into love, real love, because God had changed him. Some of the guards who had hurt him, heard his message, and gave their lives to Jesus. Mitsuo Fuchida had a different experience. After Pearl Harbor, he became a national hero and took place and helped with a lot of other raids and attacks during the war. Fuchida was in, actually, this is, he was in Hiroshima for a series of meetings and for some reason, he was called to come home on August 5th, 1945. It was the next day that the atomic bomb was dropped on that city. His life was spared. After the war, he was on the train heading towards a trial for war crimes to testify. And on the train, he was given a tract, one of those publications, little pamphlets that explains the gospel, talks about Jesus. And this tract was told the story of Jacob DeShazer and how his life was changed by Jesus and how his hatred turned into love. Remembering this moment, Fushida, he said this. He said, since the American pilot had found it in the Bible, I decided to purchase one myself, despite my traditionally Buddhist heritage. In the ensuing weeks, I read the Bible eagerly and I came to that climactic drama, the crucifixion. I read the prayer of Jesus Christ at his death. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I was impressed that I was certainly one of those for whom he had prayed. The many men I had killed had been slaughtered in the name of patriotism for I did not understand the love which Christ wished to implant within every heart. In 1950, he gave his life to Jesus. In his darkest moment, maybe, on the train traveling to a trial <laughs> to testify and face the things that he had done in the midst of war, 
Fuchida chose to come to God, to cling to him, and his life was changed. And despite the protest of friends and family and his fellow countrymen, Fuchida became a traveling evangelist for the gospel of Jesus, traveling around his home, telling people about the life-changing love that God had for them. These two men, DeShazer and Fuchida, became friends. Once enemies, divided by hatred and violence, now brothers through the transforming power of Jesus, committed together to reconciliation and to seeing the love of God transform other people. You are not too broken. You are not too desperate. You are not too helpless. God does his best work in us when we need him the most. I've seen it. God does miracles in the lives of people who cling to him in their darkest moments. Now, it might take being broken and desperate and helpless to see that God is waiting there for you to grab hold of him, to cling to him. It might take losing something of yourself to gain that perspective. That might be right where God wants you to be. Through all your struggling and wrestling, he is there for you to cling to so that you can overcome and he will give you a new name. So why wait any longer for that? No matter what you've done or who you've been to this point, whatever your old name says about you, God wants you to cling to him and he will bless you and he will give you a new future and a new name to go with it, a new perspective, um, a peace that you might not be able to explain. He's there for you. So cling to him. And you'll see what he can do. I promise you that. Would you stand? Let's close in prayer, church. God, I am, I am thankful that you are not... You are not absent, but Lord, you reach down. You come to us. You find us in our darkest places and you offer yourself to us for help, for peace, for healing, for whatever we need to overcome the struggle that we find ourselves in the midst of. And when we cling to you, God, your promises are true. You are faithful to that. When we cling to you, God, you give us a new name, a new future, a new way, a way that lasts forever in your presence. So God, today, give us eyes to see that you're right there, offering yourself to us. And then if we just reach out, we can grab hold of you and everything you have for us. Help us to see that, Lord, as we go from this place. In your grace, we pray. Amen. Amen.
God bless you, church. Have a great day. I was buried beneath my shame Who could carry that kind of weight It was my turn Till I made